so anyways, the, the first day of competition, three stages into it out of 10 stages, uh, somebody on the course went down for altitude sickness combined with some hypothermia. And we kind of pulled into a ceasefire. Everybody had to stand around for about 45 minutes while they're figuring that out. That got some other people a little bit colder and they shut the course down for the day. Kind of the, the funny thing is I was being interviewed that morning before the whole thing started and they're asking me about the weather and how I was feeling. And, you know, I came up with the cockiest Marine Corps response that I could, which was that I hoped it was going to suck a little bit more so that the seals would get uncomfortable and leave. And, uh, <laughs> <That's fantastic. laughs> and, uh, you know, I was just talking trash, but as it turned out that evening, it did start sucking a little bit more. And, uh, at least one of the seals got uncomfortable and left. <laughs> absolutely hilarious to me. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. All right, Baker, here's the first question. Just to get started. What is the most dangerous animal you think you could defeat barehanded? Fantastic question. I love shit like this. Um, full grown mature. Yeah. I'd stomp a wolf into the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Just one. I'm ready for this. You are. Okay. You got a plan. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think I could I'd maul a wolf. I mean, I'd just, I would literally shove one fist down his throat and the other one up his rectum and lock hands inside of his body and tear him into two pieces like a silverback gorilla. I know that sounds, I know that sounds like I'm being ridiculous, but like, if you can tell by the passion and excitement in my voice, sure. I'm being completely serious. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't, I think I could, I could kill a cheetah. Um, I don't know that a <clears throat> leopard would get to sneak on you. They're pretty elusive, but um, a mountain lion. I think I could take a cheetah down, a wolf. Um, hog doesn't scare me. Deer, elk. Yeah, predator-wise, wolf, wolf or cheetah. Yeah, I feel like I'd, it, I'd, I'd ragdoll a cheetah. You think so? I'd ragdoll a cheetah. Cats are hard to handle. They're they're really bendy and, and pretty fast, no, really no, no. strong. Listen, I am two hundred and thirty-five pounds of pure Georgia hell. And if I can get the BGs on you, you are done. Like I would, 
that's the thing. That's the thing. You can't half-ass it. You have to be a hundred percent committed. <laughs> oh yeah. You don't want to go part part way into a cheetah fight. Yeah, no, no. I, I I literally think I could squeeze one to death, but I would just I would just I would do a series of slams on it, but I would never let go of my death grip and I would just slam it to death. Okay. That's a good plan. That's if it wanted some. But once it started, I'm not letting it out of the fight. It's in it. It's, I'm committed. That's committed. Alta Ombre, Valley Tudo, anything goes to the death to us part. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But recently, you've been after some slightly less dangerous game, one of my favorite foods in the world, which is the sea scallop. Actually, these are base scallops. Base scallops. Okay. Yeah. So, so when you go into a restaurant and you order scallops, you, those are sea scallops. So a sea scallop is like the size of a um, a pill bottle cap. But the base scallop uh, is, is smaller. It's like the size of a large marble. And I'm, I'm telling you, man, I was thinking about this today when I was underwater. I was thinking about it yesterday when I'm underwater. And Melissa cooked up some pasta, and she does it with um, garlic and butter and salt, egg noodles, and fresh scallops. And it is one of the best dishes on this planet. And I, I like to – I was relating it to other animals and stuff that I like to eat and stuff. I mean, I love elk, and I hunt elk. I kill one bull elk every year, just, and I'll do that until I can't do it anymore. And I like to shoot deer. I like to hunt deer. I like to shoot them. That might sound a little aggressive, but like, I don't, I go after elk because of the massive rack and like, I, you know, I live in Florida and just the, the exposure to the Western environment and stuff like that. And it's, it's hard and it's rewarding and it's challenging. I don't go after elk for, for the meat. That is a massive bonus because we eat the heck out of elk um, a lot. We eat a lot of wild game. Um, I don't go after whitetail for the meat just because like whitetail meats, eh, it's okay. You know, whatever. That might be an unpopular thing to say, but that's the truth. And everyone knows it. They just won't say it out loud. Like I will scallops. I go after them to eat them. Like it is fun. It's an underwater Easter egg hunt for adults. It is a blast. It is relaxing. It's amazing, but we are there to get them to eat them and we eat them. We don't freeze them. We eat them. So we ate scallops last night. We're going to eat scallops tonight. We're going to eat scallops tomorrow night. And we're going to eat scallops the next night. And we're going to eat scallops on Monday. What people think about with scallops is exactly what you're talking about. It's a little cylindrical, you know, opaque thing that comes out on their plate at a restaurant. It tastes incredible. Um, if they're very lucky, maybe there's a piece of bacon wrapped around it or something like that. But mm -hmm. scallops are awesome. Base scallops, we don't do bacon. You just, we eat them. Yeah. We cook yeah. Them garlic and, and butter and, and salt, and they're unbelievable, man. For sure. What they don't realize is that that's, it, it comes in a package, right? They're, they, they live in a little seashell thing and they can swim, yeah. they can move around. Incredible. Yeah, they flop around like this. Yeah. This is just audio only. So he's making like a hand opening and closing motion. So the, the way that I try to describe scallop shells is it's kind of like, uh, like the, the mermaid's bikini. I think those were scallop shells. Yep. That's exactly yep. what it is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great, great way to describe that. Um, yeah. We're down here in Steenhatchy, Florida. There's three places in the United States that you can get base scallops at Steenhatchy, Florida, Crystal River, Florida, or Homosassa, 
Florida, and that's a 32-mile stretch right kind of in the – just below the armpit of the panhandle of Florida. It's awesome. God, I love it. I love how do you, it. How, how do you go after them? Like what, what scallop hunting look like? It's an underwater Easter egg hunt for adults. So we get in the boat and we'll run. We go out in Dead Man's Bay and we'll, we will run south or north. And you look for um, the water's crystal clear right now and elephant grass or eelgrass. And you look for some sandy patches and then also you look for some red moss. And when you see those things, that's where you just toss your anchor over, hop in the water, swim around. You know, five, 10 minutes, you don't see any, get in the boat, move another spot. Today, we ran all the way north to a place called Keating Beach. No luck. Came uh, back in to Big Grassy, which is an island, super small ones. And then we ran all the way south where we were yesterday, because yesterday we boat loaded them. And we once we got south today, and we found this one spot, and it was um, just nonstop diving up, down, up, down, up, down. I bet you I did. I don't know, 50 ascent descents. How deep? Actually, more than that. Um, the most fun for us is when they're in like 12 feet of water, but that's yeah. a little bit later. Uh, and that'll start happening in, in July. Right now, they're really small. They're like, I recall referred to them as yearlings today, but um, anywhere from three feet to most scallops are found anywhere from three to six feet of water. Okay. But we like to, I don't know, we like them a little bit deeper because they tend to be bigger that way. And it's just more fun. It's more of a challenge. Do, do they have uh, natural predators? Is anything eating them? Oh, um, sea urchins. Okay. A sea urchin will latch onto the shell, drill into it, and eat them out. Really? Oh, yeah. Incredible. Yep. Nasty boogers. So you live in Florida now, but you grew up in Georgia. I live in Ormond Beach, Florida. I'm from Savannah, Georgia. I grew up, born and raised in Savannah, Georgia. I went to University of Georgia. And then... Um, what did you study? Economics. Really? And then I uh, got into real estate. I was in real estate for most of the 2000s. And then the market crashed. Um, and I lost everything I had. Everything. And, it, and it's one of those things where, like, uh, when something like that happens to you and it's, it's, not, it's not your fault. It's, you know, the banks are... are uh, Georgia had more private banks closed than the rest of the country combined, I believe. And you can't, you know, your your all your stuff's good to go. Your projects are great. Like you're not like blowing money. You're being smart about it. But they just all the everything shuts down and people can't buy. They can't get loans. Uh, it was a horrible recession. I felt sorry for myself for about 48 hours, and uh, and then decided I was going to go to NYU and get a master's degree in Arabic. So uh, that that was in the spring when and it. All that happened, it took, I don't know, probably a year and a half for all that to unwind, wind down. But I was in New York at NYU and um, ended up starting this little CrossFit apparel company called Tupood. Um, that was in December of 2010 and ended up selling that a few years ago. And then uh, in January of 2011, we started this drink company called Kilcliffe. Um, and then I worked at Kilcliffe for so I'm one of the people that started the company. And I was at Kilcliffe for, I don't know, like six or seven years, something like that. And I was living in Mill Creek, Washington. Um, and then during that time is when I met Evan um, at Black Rifle Coffee and then ended up leaving Mill Creek and leaving Kilcliffe um, and uh, working for Black Rifle Coffee. And what do you do for them? Uh, business development. 
hunting and outdoor stuff and business, a primary business development focus, but like, I, you know, people tend to um, shop where they're familiar. And so a lot of the stuff I do is in the hunting and the outdoor space. Yeah. Yeah. So I was the hunting outdoor community manager for a while and then moving over to business development. Gotcha. What is business development? And I think Black Rifle has an, a very interesting story. It's had somewhat of a meteoric rise as far as its inception Absolutely. as an idea to becoming a publicly traded company. It seems to me like that's fairly fast, but this isn't a world that I live in very often either. Like, right. is that accurate to say that it, it happened quickly? You go from $1,800 in the bank and a bunch of coffee to annual sales of 232 million in seven years. That's pretty damn good. I would, I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's, it's actually, this is going to sound pretty cocky, but like if you knew Evan Hafer the way that I do, and you'd spend as much time around him as I have. um, And I, I think, you know, growing up, my father passed away when I was five. And so my mother was a full-time teacher. It was me and my younger brother. And we spent a massive amount of our time, like, you know, my mom, full-time job, two wild boys. We played sports all year long, but a lot of the time we spent a lot of time like waiting, you know, waiting to be picked up from school or my mom would have PTA parent teacher conferences and stuff. And like, or, uh, cause when my father passed away, my mother was actually in graduate school and just, so we spend a lot of time trying to figure out ways to entertain ourselves. So I've always kind of ranked my relationships with people, um, based on if I find them entertaining or not, to be honest with you. So, Evan Hafer is one of the most entertaining human being I've ever been around. He's, he's got this magnetic personality. He's hilarious. Even when things are not going well or like something bad has happened or he's stressed or whatever, it's still funny because he has this way of like laughing at every situation that he's in and like kvetching, which is a Yiddish word for bitching. So like he has this ability to kvetch about stuff, but like he just, it's, it's funny, but, um, if you look at Evan's career from the, the way he grew up in a small town in Idaho to where he is now, it, it's really, um, it's not that impressive. I mean, it, hold on, it's, it's, it, hold on. it is incredibly impressive. It's not that big of a surprise to me. So, you know, he's part of the invasion of Iraq. He's Green Bray. They worked for the agency, um, did a bunch of cool stuff there, then starts this coffee company. And like, you just kind of like, you know, like, what's next? Like, I'm not, none of it's surprising, you know, if, if you spend enough time around the guy, um, he has a really dynamic way of looking at things. And like, I don't know, I just don't think there's anything he can't do really, you know, I mean, he can't dunk a basketball, but, you know, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, it's just, it's, it's a, and it's a, it's a dynamic organization full of very dynamic people. Um, the company is for the most part run by, you know, soft, former soft NCOs. And it's like you, you never, I've never heard Evan or Matt or JT or anybody tell a, what I like to call. So there I was type of story. Um, I, I can honestly say, I, so I co-hosted launch code the podcast with Evan and I think we probably did a hundred episodes together and it was a lot of former people he worked with. And I have never once heard him, you know, say, Oh man. So there I was, it's always some hilarious story, you know, that like will happen in some weird spot that he can't tell you where it happened. Um, but they're just, it, my God, it's, 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 it's amazing. So $1,800 to 232 million in sales annually in seven, in seven years, our projection for sales in 2022, 
2023 is like 315 million. We have a market capitalization of over a billion dollars. Uh, that when we went public, it was like 1.7 or something like that. Um, it's not surprising, actually. Um, someone on the outside looking in, it's probably, I could see how they could find it odd or not understand it, but I don't know. It's just a lot of, it's, and, and, and let me say this. Evan and Matt, JT, Richard Ryan, those guys grew up at best middle class, at best, at best. Most of them were probably upper, lower class, you know, lower middle class. They, you know, I'm not going to say they grew up poor, and I don't mean that in a demeaning way, but like none of them were rich by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, none of them had any rich uncles. None of them won the lottery. None of that stuff. Um, it's all just been hard work. And, and, and I don't think you could find a company or individual on this planet that would say, man, Black Rifle screwed me over. We've never burned anybody. We've never taken advantage of anyone. We've never left anybody hanging or, you know, didn't pay invoices or things like that. Um, it's just been hard, hard work, a lot of hard work. So, and then you asked me about what is business development? So business development, the things that I am good at is knowing who's who in the zoo. And like, I'm a, I would describe myself as a broker of expertise. Like, I don't think I'm an expert in anything, but I can, I know a lot of experts in a lot of different fields and I can piece things together and, um, I have a, I would describe it as kind of like a binary thought process. It's, it's on or it's off. It's one or it's zero you know, bits and bytes. Um, and I like making good connections, which lead to good decisions. Like that's what really fires me up and gets me going. So, um, that's like, smart. yeah, developing like people, people need things. They call me, people have questions. They call me, I get you answers. Oh, you guys should talk to this or this, you know, you need to be on this podcast or, you know, hey, we need to do something with federal ammunition or, you know, like set up meetings, set up introductions. And, you know, it's funny, like everything I do, I pretend Evan's sitting right here, leaning over him, I'm pointing to my shoulder. He's always sitting on my shoulder going, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? And if you take that approach to stuff, it's kind of hard to make mistakes. Yeah, because it requires some, some, I guess, introspective thought, but really it, it makes you check with yourself throughout the process. Like, am I doing the right thing? Am I moving in the right direction? Uh, a few years ago, one of my clients bought a property specifically for elk hunting. We built a lodge on the place and, uh, and then put a bunch of work into developing it so that we could ensure that he and his friends had a good time out there hunting. Mm -hmm. Every single decision that we made, we got to ask ourselves, does this improve the elk hunting experience here or not? And if you have that North star, it's pretty easy to make decisions because it is binary. It's like, does it help us or does it not? Are we getting closer? Or are we getting farther away from our destination? And, right. and I think that more people could use that approach. And that's why it's important to set pretty lofty goals, because if you achieve your goal too soon, you've just lost your direction. You don't have a North star. You have to, you have to think of something else to drive towards. No, it's it, that. No, I completely agree with you on that. Um, a lot of the stuff that, you know, since we're public now, like we have to account for basically literally every dollar we spend. And it's a question like, does this sell coffee? Does this further the mission of the brand? You know, does this, and I'll ask myself from time to time is, is what I'm doing right now an effective use of my time? And I think if you do that from time to time throughout the day, I think you would be shocked at how often you say, absolutely not. This is not an effective use of my time, but yeah, it's been it's been a wild ride, man. Like it's a ton of fun. Um, it's been a lot of hard work. 
and it's just been really exciting like the whole thing you know i don't want to say i got those guys into hunting but i did play a very vital role in getting them into archery like i bought evan and matt and logan their first bows that's cool um yeah and because I, I watched that sitka film uh place of peace with um bobby farmer and uh you know he made he had a, a line in there that said therapy 20 paces at a time and that kind of resonated with me and so i um I got Evan and Matt and Logan all Hoyts and uh, they started shooting and, you know, took Logan, Logan and I hunted in Africa and we hunted in Kansas and did some Texas stuff, did some turkey hunting with Matt. And uh, it's just been awesome, man. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. I'm hoping Logan can come out and do uh, do a bear hunt with me. He wanted to this year, but he got jammed up with skydiving or something. Oh yeah. That's the thing. Those guys have been bitten by the bug. Evan, uh, Evan actually grew up just a couple hours away from where I'm standing right here. Um, just over that way. And you know, the, the city there, if you can call it that, um, you know, it's got an airport that's like one room has one bathroom in it. That's where I go for groceries. You know, that's, that's like my closest, you know, real town. I think there's like 17,000 people there. And when you're talking about, middle class it's an interesting thing to look at what that means there because it's the jet boat capital of the world um there's mm -hmm. five or six different jet boat manufacturing facilities there and it's critical infrastructure for just getting around in this area we have many many miles of rivers that people live on and they recreate on that don't have roads and you couldn't put a road in there if you tried so people get around on jet boats and with it being the jet boat capital of the world, it's also the, the world capital of places that have boats that cost more than the home that they're parked next to. Huh. What's the jet boats expensive? I mean, all boats are expensive, but uh, you know, for, for something that's new, you're, you're, that's 20 feet long. You're going to be in that like 70 to a hundred thousand dollar range at this point. Or an um, aluminum hold boat, boat. Yeah. Yeah. They're an expensive deal, but they, they have to be able to sustain, you know, a lot of abuse. You're going through really scary rapids. There's rocks. You're going many miles without help. So it's sort of like a super cub in that regard. Like everything has to work. If it doesn't work, the consequences are extremely severe. If you're just in a little runabout boat on a bay or on a lake and something doesn't work out, you're probably not going to die. If something doesn't work out in a jet boat, something's probably going to go seriously wrong with, with the inhabitants of that boat. There's consequences, severe consequences. Okay. So with that comes a, a skill and a quality of material, a skill of labor and a quality of material that costs money. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where are you right now? What, what town? Uh, closest town is Lostine, Oregon. Okay. I gotcha. Yeah. So how are the SIG hunter games? Are you allowed to talk about that? Yeah, man, we just wrapped it up. Um, I I think it went really well considering uh, we had some bad weather. So uh, the first ah, the first day, Bert Soren posted some Instagram videos. <laughs> yeah, and it's like I was like, I think is that snow? It looks like snow, man. That was my first time meeting Bert. That guy's a treasure. I I really enjoyed him. Um, he's a Bert good Soren? human. Yeah, yeah, he's an awesome guy. He's a good friend of mine. Oh, cool. Yeah, he he was great. He's very very nice very cool to be around interesting guy love yeah. to have him on the show at some point too so anyways the the first day of competition three stages into it out of 10 stages uh somebody on the course went down for altitude sickness combined with some hypothermia 
and we kind of pulled into a ceasefire. Everybody had to stand around for about 45 minutes while they're figuring that out. That got some other people a little bit colder and they shut the course down for the day. Kind of the, the funny thing is I was being interviewed that morning before the whole thing started and they're asking me about the weather and how I was feeling. And, you know, I came up with the cockiest Marine Corps response that I could, which was that I hoped it was going to suck a little bit more so that the seals would get uncomfortable and leave. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, you know, I was just talking trash, but as it turned out that evening, it did start sucking a little bit more. And, um, at least one of the seals got uncomfortable and left. (laughs) Absolutely hilarious to me. Who was on your team? Um, so I had a guy named Mike Cunahan. He's a NYPD officer and a big, uh, like first form fitness guy. Um, and then a gentleman named Matt Bullis, who's a chef from Nashville, and then Mike Kimmel, who's a professional python hunter from Florida. Oh, uh, python cowboy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. So, yeah, super eclectic team. We we had a great time. Matt and uh, and Mike uh, Cunahan, they had you know basically never shot a rifle off of a range before, so that was that was a trick for them to be suddenly in you know, high altitude, cold weather, crappy environment on the clock, got to find these targets, which are really hard to find, and then get 36 shots off for the team in 20 minutes. Extremely difficult to do um, for, for shooters of that experience level. So we focused on, on learning and we got better on every single stage. Uh, day two, the weather got a little bit nicer. It was a lot colder. Some of the fitness stages were extremely challenging and I guarantee you everybody that did that event is not walking straight today. Like everybody's hurting. Yeah, dude. So flatlanders such as myself, like it takes a a day or two to get your mountain legs under you. Like, and you know, I've lived out in Washington. I've done tons of hiking out there and stuff, but like Python cowboy, I can imagine that would be a little challenging for him that altitude and the up, but he's not carrying a lot of extra mass. He's a pretty lean guy. Yeah, he, he's about 135 pounds. Yeah. He, sh- he showed up there in, in Danner snake boots, like slick cowboy boots, uh, wore those the whole time. He never complained at all. The closest he came to complaining was to tell me that he was cold. Um, he didn't bring gloves. He doesn't need warm gloves in his life. Um, and I gave him mine, which, you know, he could almost fit inside of. And yeah, that guy was really impressive. That was his first time seeing snow. His first time seeing snow was under conditions where tents were collapsing under the weight of the snow and he was waking up in it. So hats off to that dude for managing that. Cause if you took me down to the Florida Everglades and kicked me out into his climate, I would die. I would just melt or something. I don't know. I wouldn't know how to function. I would definitely complain about it. That's the thing, man. Like um, I was talking to Morgan Mason, who's our new um, hunting community manager. I know Morgan. uh, Yeah. So you know, it's, it's a hundred degrees down here with a hundred percent humidity. Like it's, it is, it's, it's tough. It's tough. And he was like, man, he's like, it's 47 degrees in Montana. He's like, I'm about to turn the heat on. And I was like, dude, Oh my God, you have no idea. But um, yeah, like it's uh, it's interesting when you take people out of that, that have spent like a lifetime in one environment and throw them into the opposite environment, how they respond. You can tell a lot about, about a person by that, you know, yeah. like you, it's, you know, and just cause you've done stuff like that at one point in your life, doesn't mean that you still can, you know, like, Hey, I used to do, you know, X, Y, and Z. And now I don't seek out suffering or discomfort anymore, you know, but, um, 
Yeah, that sounds like it was a good time. Who actually, uh, who won that thing? It was um, Bert's team won it, right? Yep. So Bert and Corey Jacobson and Hoist Gracie and Kendall Gray won it. And that's such a cool thing for a lot of reasons. I love Hoist. He he's a really philosophical guy besides being a, you know, UFC legend, changing martial arts forever. Um, Hoist is a really cerebral, thoughtful guy. And he has interesting stuff to say all the time. And he, he waxes back and forth between being very, very serious and being really jovial and light spirited. He's an interesting dude to be around. I uh, hoist shot it last year and, and struggled on some of the stages a little bit. And you could tell that he probably spent a big part of the last year thinking about how he would do it better. And then he put that to work. Corey Jacobson, 11 time, I think 12 time world champion elk caller. Like this guy knows how to win competitions really well. Last year, he was on a team that was close to last place. I think second to last place. Corey doesn't have a huge amount of experience with a rifle, but he's got a lot with a bow. And again, he's a guy that thinks about improvement and then he put it into practice. Kendall Gray, I don't think that guy has hardly any experience with a rifle. And, uh, and he was able to, to stay humble, learn from the rest of his team, um, contribute to the success of that team. And they crushed it, man. I'm so happy for those guys. All of them. Who's Kendall Gray? He's a YouTuber. He's a, he's a kid from the South. Um, don't know a lot about him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Kendall Gray. You okay. Yeah, no, no, I got you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay. Um, yeah. That's awesome, man. Good for you. So it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Again, extremely challenging, physically challenging, mentally, emotionally, you know, with that weather element, you know, that was hard for a lot of people. The shooting was very hard. Running time limits was really hard. There was pistol stages, uh, long distance rifle stages. I think we ended up firing about 6,000 rounds and the, uh, the average shot distance was 288 yards. Okay. Um, and the longest shot was 740 ish somewhere in there. Yeah, it's th that long range stuff. Like I've done some long range shooting with Clint Smith in or South uh, East Oregon uh, yep. and Brian Morgan, like Hat Creek training and, and whatnot. Um, that stuff is phenomenal. Um, it's not a skill. I, like would I like to get better at it? Yes. Am I curious to know a little bit more of the science behind it? Yes. Do I have any interest in shooting animals at those distances? Absolutely not. No. I, like, I, if I can't see it without, with, if I can't see it, clearly with my naked eye, I, you know, it's just, it's not my thing. Um, I shot my elk last year at the Hill ranch. It was 312 yards. Nice. And I think that was, I've made some longer shots in Africa, but I, that's about the extent of my range that I like to shoot it at. Like I like to, but that elk was so big and literally rack and body size. I was like, yeah. And he was just broadside on the other side of a hill. I was like, I, and I could lay down and shot him prone, just dropped him. He took a half step and fell over dead. Um, but some people, like people that are truly talented with the long range stuff, really, really impressed me. I just can't seem to hold the damn gun st that still. Like, I, I, I can't. Like, it's just, I get excited and like, it just won't, the damn thing won't stop moving. Yeah. It's a big part of the skill, right? Uh, yeah. You know, if I dive below 12 feet, like what you're talking about, if I had to go pick a scallop off the bottom that was 12 feet deep, I would be panicking. I would feel like my head was going to get crushed in because I don't possess the skill to be able to manage water pressure. It's a doable thing. I just don't have it. And right. building a steady shooting position is doable. 
You just got to learn how to do it. You know, it's a, it's a human skill. I love long range shooting. I like close range hunting. You know, if yeah. that, if that bear has powder burns on it, even better. Right. 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 Um, you know, the, the closer it is, the more sure I can be a, of a like really quick ethical shot. And that, that projectile, whether it's a, a bullet or, or a freaking arrow going exactly where I want, you know, that tends to be more of a sure thing, the closer that I get. So I want to get yeah. as close as possible. Yeah. My last two elk were with, so I, I've, I'm on elk seven. Um, my last two were with a rifle. The previous five were with a bow. Um, and I, I think, um, the elk I shot last year was 381 inches. It's massive. Like, I don't think I'll ever. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. I don't think that's a once in a generation elk, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and it, you know, I think going forward, it's just going to be bow only for me, unless someone's like, Hey, we want you to come on this elk hunt with us. And we're using rifles. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. But if it's something that I'm going to initiate and all that stuff, it's like this fall, uh, I'll be at Deseret, um, and it will be with Bo, for sure, for sure. But yeah, I, I think that elk hunting with a bow, if that doesn't do it for you, I don't know what will. I mean, I had, I had one in the Selway Bitterroot four years ago, five years ago, maybe. I don't remember. Bugle at four feet in my face, five feet. Oh my, in my gosh. Face. Yeah, and the thing is, man, like. That'll change your life. Well, especially if you're on a knee and your bow's drawn and you're literally holding it at your waist. Yeah. So imagine taking a knee. So here's what happened. We were on horseback and we were going up to this knob and we were three quarters of the way up there. And there was a meadow to our left full of ferns and hit a hoochie mama cow call. And this elk in that meadow ripped a bugle. And I dismounted my horse, my buddy Jamie, with me. I dismounted my horse, pulled the air, the bow out of the scabbard. And in my head, I looked like Legolas from Lord of the Rings, dismounting this <laughs> magnificent steed. All right. And the, the brush line was like super, super thick. Like what, you know, how you would describe like where black bears live, you know, like thick, thick stuff. So I dive in. He's 20, 30 yards up from me. He dives in as well. And, um, the next thing I know, I hear this noise coming through the brush and I was like, why in God's name is Jamie walking to me right now? Like what is going on? And Jamie and I have hunted on three continents together. All right. Like we've hunted a lot together. And, um, next thing I know, I look up and there's an elk five, six feet from me and his eyes looked insane. And there was just snot running down his face like that of his mouth and nose drooling he just looked crazy and um and i was like oh my god what do i do and so i'm quartering away from him so like my belly button's facing his face all right and i just drew my bow back so the next time you're shooting your bow take a knee and draw your bow back at your waist and just hold it there not up you know, or, or, or your chest is right, but down at your waist. And it, cause it just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. And, um, and I'm sitting there and I was like, what in the world am I going to do? Like I have this bow drawn, this elk is, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I feel like an idiot. And then he walked directly in front of me and he's standing there. So he was five or six feet at my two thirty, 
Then he walks to my 12 o'clock and I'm sitting there with this bow drawn at my waist on a knee. And I was like, you know what? I, the, my first thought was just stand up and shoot him in the face. <laughs> and then I thought that is the dumbest idea I've ever had. <laughs> like, this is, if, if it's not a gun. You know what I mean? That was my thought was like threat firearm. Yeah. Blast. Right. Um, but then I was like, immediately, like, I was like, no, I can't do that. This is a bow. And plus it's, I can't shoot through this shit anyway. It's too thick. So I just stood up and he wheeled, wheeled around and ran 33 yards. Um, and there was this one patch in this, in these ferns that was four feet wide by, it wasn't even that wide, by 10 feet long. All right. And um, he stopped and turned broadside right there. And I just let him have it. And that was the first morning, seven, probably seven fifteen. So that's the thing with elk with me. Like I'm, I don't of my seven elk, six of them have been killed on the first day. That's great. That shows a really important attitude that I think a lot of people make mistakes on. And this is a debatable thing, but I, I tell people, I tell clients, I tell friends, I tell myself, don't pass on the first day, something that you would kill on the last day of your hunt, because Absolutely. there's no guarantee you'll get this opportunity again. And I've, had, and I've had a lot of people argue against this and say, well, you'll never get what you want. If, if you have that kind of attitude, and it's like, maybe you're wanting the wrong thing that like, that's another, that's another conversation. Like you need to know in your mind that if, if you would accept this result, on your last opportunity and this result shows up earlier, you have to take that because you don't know if it's going to happen again. And also add this to what you're saying is make sure it's what you want, not what Instagram wants. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I've, I've, I've talked about scores a ton, but a Rocky mountain elk, a mature Rocky mountain elk, a normal one is between 280 and 310 inches. If he's bigger or smaller than that and mature, that's a genetic anomaly. And it's really yeah. interesting and beautiful, but it doesn't necessarily represent the species. It represents yeah. an anomaly within the species. Yeah. So um, being from the South, like all elk to me are fascinating. So my first elk was uh, shot in Utah with my bow. It was 305 inches. Um, dude, awesome. Yeah. Uh, dude, sitting on a water hole, hunting with a, a, a buddy of mine that I'd met in Africa the year before or that previous summer. And um, he's like, I'm going to take my daughter to go sit on this wallow and I'm going to put you on a wallow. And I was like, all right. He's like, can you handle that? I was like, yeah, I got this hoochie mama. I'll just blow it every once in a while. Um, and it's just a big deer. That's all it is. It's a big deer. You know, same, same concept, vitals, arrow, whole blood, lungs, heart, blood, the whole thing. I know how this works. I'm, I'm going to be okay. And Dude, I was sitting there and it was Georgia Notre Dame game. And I, I despise Notre Dame. I can't stand that program. I don't like him. I hate the movie Rudy. Um, not a Notre <laughs> Dame fan at all. And I was like broken, like, like one at one bar and it was roaming. And like I was getting sporadic updates from my brother, but I couldn't send a text out. And um, and then all of a sudden I heard this noise that I'd never heard before. And so I was like, what is that? So I knocked an arrow and slid down this meadow and there was this massive hardwood that had fallen over at the base of the meadow, basically creating a kind of like a, a, a wall, so to speak. Like it was a big old tree and nothing's going to go over it or under it. It has to go around it. 
And so I, I was like, I bet that's a wallow that I'm hearing. And then, you know, I get down there and then there's this massive cow moose. And I was like, oh, well, that and what I'm telling you right now happened within about five to 10 seconds. So I get down there and I see this massive cow moose. And I was like, oh, maybe I guess that's what was making all that that ruckus. And I was like, what an absurd looking animal. I mean, a, a big cow moose is silly looking. They Ooh, are. Silly. They're a weird they, looking animal. They look like they're built with spare parts. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking at it. I was like, wait a minute, that animal's dry. And then as my head swung back to 12 o'clock, so that was at like, you know, two o'clock. As I'm swinging back to 12, I just see these G1s and G2s coming up over this hill and 40 yards from me. And I thought, and this elk was, when I say covered in mud, I'm talking about you could not have put another ounce of mud on its body. That's how much mud it had. It was had all the mud that it could handle. There was no more room for more mud. I've never seen that. And I just thought, I'm shooting that. And I didn't look at its rack again. And it hung a left, my left. And I was like, oh, darn, that tree's in the way. The only shot opportunity I have is if it goes in that space right there, which was 33 yards away, also 33 yards. So not only did he walk and stop in that space, but he turned five degrees to his right, opening up both shoulders and lungs, double lunged him. And like, I was, because that's one of the things, man, like growing up in the South, you're like, will this ever happen for me? Am I ever going to kill an elk? You know, like, and and now granted, I lived in Washington at the time. So I had, you know, kind of a little more familiar with, the topography and the species and stuff, but like, you know, coming from the South, you're just like, is this ever going to happen? And I just thought my first thought was no one can ever take this away from me. I just accomplished something that most people where I'm from never get a chance to. And I remember like, and I, like I get excited. I'm very, like, I'm not the best hunter, but I challenge you to find someone that has more fun than I do. Like I, dude, I, I really do enjoy it. Have a good time. And, um, my legs and like, this is going to sound bad, but like, dude, I, I've put a lot of, I've shot a lot of animals in my life. Like I'm 45, like a lot. And, um, I don't get the shakes, you know? And I looked down and my right leg was jackhammering. Yeah. Jackhammering. And I just remember pulling out my phone and recording it. Like, and then I was like, what the hell am I doing? Why am I recording my leg? And I was like, Oh, cause I want to remember this. So put the phone back in. And I was like, all right, you know, you're supposed to wait, you know, 30, 45 minutes, an hour. I'm going to be responsible. And that lasted for all of 30 seconds. And I said, <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm just going to go over there and see if I can find the arrow. Yeah. You know, because I was like, man, it was a perfect shot. And like, I've never shot an elk. I've never seen a dead elk, you know, any of that stuff, you know, watch tons of videos and stuff. So I walk over there and um, I was like, man, I can't find the arrow. I must have missed. And then I was like, you're an idiot. You didn't miss. You heard it drilling. What do you mean miss? But the self-doubt, there's always doubt there until you put your hands on. Yeah. And I remember swinging to my left in the direction that he took off in, and it looked like someone went through the forest with one of those exterminator pumps full of blood. You know, they they pump up and they have the sprayer. Yeah. Blood. A two-year-old could have tracked this thing to the woods. Like, there was blood eight feet in the air. And I was like, oh, my God, man, he's done. So I'm following this blood, like literally everywhere. High, low, right, left, ground, branches, trees. 
And what the, what the elk did was he ran to this 85 yards to this clearing and stopped running and walked up hill 10 feet and fell over dead. Okay. Anyway, so I get to the, I mean, it was in a, it was an alarming amount of blood to the point where like, I was like, I'm going to walk on the outside of it. Cause it's going to, I don't want to get covered in it, you know, right. cause if I follow the blood trail, I'm going to be waist down red. Yep. And I get to this clearing and remember I said he was covered in mud and I get to this clearing and I was like, Oh hell, where's all the blood now? He got away. Just irrational, stupid thought. And I remember finding this one glop of what was blood had mixed with some of the mud on it. Yeah. And falling. I was like, Oh, I gut shot it. And I was like, wait a minute, you dumbass. It's not what that is. It's mud and blood. And then, you know, look up to the right and he's right there dead. Uh, and dude, it was epic. And so back to the Georgia Notre Dame thing, like as I'm trailing this elk, I'd bump in and out of like regular service and I'd text my brother, like, Oh my God, I just shot a, shot an elk. I'm free, freaking out. And like, I'm reading updates in the game and like, it's this back and forth, Notre Dame, Georgia, Notre Dame, it's 2017. Um, and so I'm in and out of service and, you know, we're breaking the elk down and I'm getting some updates from my brother. And I just remember we're packing it out and we packed that thing out like six miles or something. And this is we're we get it broken down, packed up. And then Eli was like, Hey, there's still probably, I don't know, 45 minutes of shooting light, uh, left. I'm going to go run back over to where my daughter is. And I was like, cool. I'm just, he's like, yeah, you just wait right here. I was like, no problem. So I'm sitting there, dude. And like, I've got this elk and like, I'm, and all of a sudden, like I see these elk on this hill and I watched Eli and his daughter move. And I watched a spike come and pee right where they once were. So like, it was just this amazing, amazing experience. Now back to Notre Dame, Georgia. So we start our final pack out. It's dark. And Notre Dame had just taken the lead. And I, I really despise that program. I can't stand it. Um, you mentioned that earlier. I hate the movie, Rudy. I can't. I don't <laughs> like anything about school. They're not in a conference. It's bullshit. So we get, and I was like, and I, I don't pray a lot. Like, and I don't pray out of desperation and things like that. And I don't ask for material things and stuff like that. You know, good Lord's got better stuff to worry about. But I was just like, God, you know, this might be selfish, but if you could deliver a Georgia victory plus this elk, I will never ask you for anything as long as I live. (laughs) (laughs) But at that point, like I was like, you know, hey, you know, an elk and a Georgia loss, I can I can live with that. So, dude, we're hiking out of this canyon. We get back to the truck, and, like, we're driving up the hill, dude, and my phone starts blowing up. Like, I think I got 100 congrats texts. And I was like, oh, my God, that's really cool. And I was like, wait a minute. No one but my brother knows I shot myself. I haven't didn't have any service. I haven't posted anything. Like, I was in the moment. And I was like, and then Chris Rosa was like, great freaking game, dude. Congrats. And I was just like, this is the best day ever. I shot my first elk with a bow on public land alone and we beat Notre Dame. That's that amazing. Was that was That's a amazing. I love nice. that story. Yeah. I yeah, love it that. It, it was so cool. It was so cool. It was great. It was fantastic. Of all the elk I've ever, ever called in, which is a lot. Uh, there's only ever been one that was completely covered in mud like that. And it's probably my favorite memory of calling in elk. And 
I, I remember it clearly because over a period of about 45 minutes, I think I called in five bulls between like 17 and 30 yards from my hunter. He never had to yeah. move his feet and they came in like just one after the next. And that, that one bull that came in there just fresh out of the wallow, he was glistening black. His horns were covered in mud. Everything about him was just black, wet mud, except for his eyes. And he bugled right there in front of us. It was the culmination of like every effort I've ever put into elk hunting and elk calling right there. And we didn't shoot him and I don't care. Like it was amazing and it was perfect. It was a perfect moment. And those yeah, don't it, come by all that you, often. When you see them covered in mud like that, like you're just kind of like, man, that's kind of crazy. No, it's like they just came out of Stranger Things or some shit. Yeah, like that. and you it's have wild. like a bunch of different thoughts. It's like, what, why, Mister L? Like you're filthy. Like what? What are you doing? Like you know, you know how many of your friends have peed and vomited and pooped in that water? Here you are rolling around all in it. You big beautiful bastard, you. Yeah. Um, it's euphoric for them. They love it. They yeah. act so goofy and wallows. It's it's elk yeah. behavior like they don't behave any other time in their lives. Um, and so caution to the wind, like yeah. every, all bets are off. I'm just going to get it on with this mud puddle. I'm going to roll around. I'm going to pee. I'm going to scream. I'm going to, I'm going to lay in it. Yeah. Drink some of it. Um, it's crazy behavior, but it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, I think it's awesome, but yeah, like my, the thing that I'm, uh, we're going to Africa in, uh, just under a month, um, which, and Melissa has never been in, um, we're going to Crusader Safaris and which will be like in the, the South and the Cape. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to be awesome. Like she and I were talking um, and like she started hunting with me. I think it last, not this past white tail season, the season before. And um, she shot several deer, shot a nice uh, old buck broken off everywhere this year, shot a really nice hill country buck in Texas with me, missed two axis, and the funny thing um, about the axis is like um, Melissa is not an excitable uh, emotional hunter. Like she's quite reserved. Like, hey, shoot that 12 rings, everything she shoots literally and um, calm as can be. And uh, I remember we're sitting there in these two axis, 35 inches, full velvet hammers walk out and it was a visceral reaction from her. She goes, Oh my God. And I was like, <laughs> damn, I didn't see that coming. So we hunted those things for like three days and we, we, we like Jesco or boxer puppy, he was a little guy at the time. And like when we hunt with him in the blind, which is every time we would pick him up and cover his ears. So he didn't have to hear the, the, the shot. And he's normally fine, but he, she had a shot and I was like, he's not ready. And he was like squirming around. Um, and then we, we missed the axis, got a nice uh, hill country whitetail. But um, we were talking and I was like, you know, this trip, you know, this is going to be your call. Like, you know, this is you know, kind of, you're the focus here. And um, she's never hunted with an outfitter or any of that stuff. It's just always been her, the, her and I at, the, at our farm in, in Georgia. And um, she was like, well, that's a lot of pressure and blah, blah, blah. I was like, what do you mean? She, she it was funny because she thought that I meant to like, we're going to be in Africa. It's just going to be the two of us. And then she was going to like, all right, we're going to go here today or whatever. And I was like, no, 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 that's not how it works. But um, that's what we're going to do, man. Like we're going to go over there. And when I get that reaction out of it, like, Oh my God, 
when I get that reaction, when she sees the different animals, like that's the species we're going to go after. So it's going to be fun. Um, Cape Buffalo, think, here we come. <laughs> no, no, not yet. Not this trip. Not this okay. trip. Next summer is my 20-year anniversary of going to Africa for the first time. Wow. Um, so next year, next summer will be an, either an elephant or a Cape Buffalo. But um, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to shoot like – I really, really like kudu. Um, yeah. I think she's going to freak out when she sees one. They're so um, beautiful. Just the way they enter. Yeah. Like you see a move and you're like, wow, that's the bell of the bus. The hottest woman in the city walking into the bar and every head swings and looks at him. You're like, oh my God. Um, so I'm going to do a couple of kudos. She's got a planes game package. Um, but I have this feeling she's probably going to freak out when she sees a kudu in a giant eland and some stuff like that. But it's going to be fun. We're at Crusader. It's 400,000 acres, low fence. It's not high fence property, fair chase. Super pumped about that. Um, but my main thing is, um, I love Africa and then just whitetail deer, man. Like I, I, uh, that's my thing. That's, that's my jam. That's, and, and I'm not like last year I, I hunted and I shot a nice four by four muley buck, uh, with my bow in, the, in Curtis, Nebraska. And I, I get the spot and stalk velvet bucks. I've never understood why someone would go do that when they could go chase an elk. I understand that now. And then I went to the Hill ranch and shot that elk. And then I shot a 400 pound black bear that was, that just as chocolate as a chocolate lab is my first bear. Um, that got really Western. I ran out of ammo on him, killed him with my last bullet. I had to put a few in him. Um, but, uh, and then we were in Texas, but this year I'm going to do that elk at Deseret with Evan. And then I'm just going to focus on um, white tail at our place. Like, you know, just, and then Melissa and I will absolutely go back to Texas, but like, I, I don't, I'm not going to, like the traveling to hunt and all that stuff, man. Like I'm just really want to focus on what we're going to have some really big deer this year to play. So that's going to be my focus. Well, I expect some pictures from Africa. I've only got to hunt there once, but I I almost didn't, didn't come back. And there's every day there's part of me that sort of wishes that I would have stayed there because it, it is so incredible. It's interesting. Like growing up in the South, I say that a lot, but I think you have African hunters and you have, western elk hunters and when you grow up in the south you you either want to go to africa or you want to go do an elk and for me i didn't know i didn't know or care about what an elk was you know i was always like after this after that like my god that's what i want to do oh it's so much fun i've been over there a bunch i absolutely love it i haven't been in a few years you know obviously because of covid and stuff but like i'm fired up man like i i can't wait i cannot wait it's gonna be awesome I'm looking, looking forward to the pictures and I hope you guys have an awesome time. It's really cool. That she's going to get to go with you. And, oh yeah. and I do think that she's probably going to lose your mind when she sees a kudu, which is the right thing to do. It's it's she's it's on, it's in her package. She's got one. It's, it's there for it. So cool. I think she'll freak out when she sees them. Well, where can people follow along on the adventures of Baker? Uh, my Instagram account, black Baker, my middle name and my first name, black Baker. That's my Instagram account. Follow me there. And then cool. BRCC Outdoors, Black Rifle Coffee Company Outdoors. Nice. I run that for Black Rifle. So th- those two places. Nice. Is uh, is Morgan going to be taking that on? The BRCC Outdoors? Yeah. No, no, that's my baby. No, that gotcha. I will. Uh, from my cold dead hands. No one. Will, <laughs> that's my, uh, no one touches. That's I built that account for the company. Um, cool. No, that's just that's uh, that's one of the things I just I I take pride in that. Like I understand people. Uh, and I, I legitimately enjoy interacting with people and, um, 
that that account performs it. I mean, I think I did one one post this year is I think it had forty six million views on it. Um, yeah, it's a lot, man. That's good. That's nice. real good. Yeah, impressive. Very impressive. Well. Sir, thank you again for your time. I'm jealous that you're going to be having scallops for dinner. Um, I'm going to have to combat that by eating some elk or something like that. I don't know. All right, man. Thanks for All having right. me on the show. Absolutely. All right. Take care. I'm working on building a house this year, which is something that I know nothing about. And I love that. It's exciting. Uh, everything is a new challenge and there's lots of challenges that pop up. The other day, we were laying out rebar and getting ready to pour concrete for the foundation of the shop that's going to be next to the house. And one of the guys that was there that was helping, one of the construction crewmen, I looked over and he had a Stanley thermos sitting on the end of the trailer. I said, how do you like that thing? And he goes, oh, I love it. I've had it for a decade. Like, you know, if you find any environment where people are out there working hard, working hard with their hands outside, no matter the conditions, you're probably going to see a Stanley product there. It's something that just goes with that blue collar labor, because that's what this product is doing. It is out there working just as hard as you are. It's going to be there as long as you are. It's going to be there after you're done. It's something that, that I feel passionate about with every piece of gear that I take either into the woods or into the workplace, like it's got to be able to outwork me. And I work really hard myself. If you are also a hard worker, and I'm sure that you are, then you could probably appreciate the same type of gear. If you go to stanley1913.com and you use the discount code six ranch, that's the number six and the word ranch, you can get 25% off just about any of their products. And I encourage you to do that. They're a great supporter of this show and a great supporter of this audience. Again, I love you guys. And I just want to pass this, uh, this discount and the savings on to you. If you want something from Stanley, I encourage you to get it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.